Thank you, thank you. Good morning, everyone. So good to see your faces, your lovely faces. Uh, Laura and I spent some time up in Alaska seeing uh, my son and his family, and, um, and then we went on a luxurious cruise where we forgot to pick up towel, forgot how to pick up towels after ourselves and things like that. But anyway, it's great to be home. I agree with Bill 100%. There's nowhere else I'd rather be than with you this morning. So I want to uh, ask you to turn your attention to the word diligence this morning. Um, Those of you who were here last Sunday remember that Bill preached on 2 Peter 1 verse 4 and following. And as he was preaching, um, I noticed that the word diligence was in the passage he read three times, or twice, and then a couple verses afterwards. So in verse 5, it says, um, Now for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith. And then in verse 10, it says, Be all the more diligent. And then in verse 15, Uh, Peter says, I will also be diligent. I have to say that this word diligence kind of leapt off the page at me, and the first verse I thought of related to to diligence is one that I've memorized in the book of Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 27.12, that says, A slothful man does not roast his prey. But the precious possession of a man is diligence. And so here it is. This is a precious possession that we have. And I'm wondering how attuned we are to its preciousness. What is diligence? Well, I went to the dictionary and looked it up. And in English, it means a steady, earnest, and energetic effort at something. It's a process of persevering application, giving urgent or careful attention to something. There's actually two Greek words that are translated diligence in our Bibles, and uh, one of those words means your business or your craft. And I liked that word craft because it it brought up a, a mental picture of um, a craftsman working in his shop and devoting his skill and his attention to detail to his craft, which in this case is our faith. Think about how hard you work at your job or your endeavor and compare it to how you approach your faith. Are you a craftsman? when it comes to examining and working on the details and the complexities of your faith. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, 
handling accurately the word of truth. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman. And then again, let me remind you of verse 5 in 2 Peter chapter 1 that said, applying all diligence to your faith. Well, one great example of diligence, uh, a great example that brought all her dedication to her craft is a female soccer player named Carly Lloyd. How many of you remember Carly Lloyd? Um, we had a group at our home watching the World Cup on, uh, in, in 2015. And uh, let me tell you just a bit about Carly. She is the, arguably the best women's soccer player of all time. She's a two-time Olympic gold medalist. She scored the gold medal winning goals in the 2008-2012 Olympic women's soccer finals. And in 2015, the FIFA Women's World Cup playing Japan, she scored a hat trick, three goals within the first 16 minutes of the game. And we were blown away by her third goal, which she saw that the, she, was, she was about 60 yards from the goal. Imagine how far that is. And she saw that the goalie had come quite a bit forward, and so she just launched this beautiful arcing kick that went in the goal. Her coach, uh, she has a personal coach that I'll tell you about in a minute. He made her practice that shot over and over and over for just such an opportunity. Now, Tom Lotz is in the congregation this morning, and, and, and I really need to give kudos to Tom. He predicted the score of the game at 5-2 before the game started, and he very frequently reminds us of that uh, great prediction. Well, when she accepted her Women's World Player of the Year award, she thanked her personal coach, a man named James Galanis. And nobody had heard of James Galanis, but a few years previous to that, uh, he had started training her at the request of her father. And when he first met her, this is what he said. I met her at the soccer field where she grew up playing and did a skill evaluation and discovered a player that had good skill but was obviously very unfit. I basically discovered a player that really didn't know how a professional thinks. Based on what I remember from her off-the-ball movement, I knew she was skilled. I knew that she had street savvy. I knew what to do. Uh, excuse me. She knew what to do without the ball, and she was real, real crafty. I knew that if I could get her physically fit and fix her mind, teach her how a professional thinks, turn her into a fierce competitor, instill some discipline in her, I could have an amazing soccer player. So I sat her down and explained that there were five pillars necessary to be a champion player, a championship player. Technical skills, tactical awareness, physical power, mental toughness, and character. I told her she had the first two, but if we could grab her weaknesses and turn them into strengths, she could go on and be the best player in the world. 
Well, while I make a few more comments about uh, her coach and about her, I want you to circle that fourth pillar in your mind, mental toughness, mental toughness. Carly said, here are just some quotes from Carly. I wish someone had told me before James that to be great, I would have to give 100%, 100% of the time. She said, I would tend to blame others for my failures rather than realizing I had to look at myself and own that I needed to be mentally stronger. I've realized over the years that if you don't have it up here, on the mental side of things, you're not going to make it. Galani said of her, she's an athlete that realizes you've got to outwork everybody, outthink everybody. She's one of the most dedicated people you will ever meet. He would call her up at all hours of the night and day in a snowstorm right before prom uh, in the middle of the night and have her come practice so that she would always keep her goal first, which was to be the greatest soccer player in the world. So here's a question for you. Does our faith demand this kind of dedication? What do you think? Does our faith demand the same kind of dedication? I would say absolutely. We just read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, what? Applying all diligence to your faith. We saw how one of the words means being a craftsman, skilled, excellent at what we do and who we are. So today I'd like to focus in on that pillar of mental toughness that I asked you to circle a moment ago. And I want to title this message, Developing the Mental Toughness Our Faith Requires. Specifically, I want to look at five resolutions we can make to develop our mental toughness, to facilitate our diligence. I've put these in the form of I will not statements because I've lifted them out of Scripture. So here we go. Here's resolution number one. Resolution number one that I think will strengthen our mental toughness is to say this to ourselves is I will not be ashamed of Jesus Christ or his gospel. I will not be ashamed of Jesus Christ or his gospel. In Mark 8, 38, we read, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In Romans 1, 16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel for what? For it is the power of God unto salvation. We sang a song this morning, I am not ashamed of the name above all names, for it has the power to heal and to save. And yet, 
if we're honest with ourselves, most of us probably have had moments when we have been ashamed to identify with Jesus Christ or ashamed of the foolishness of the gospel, times when we have wanted to fly under the radar and uh, just be quiet about our faith, be passive, be hidden. And um, we shouldn't be so surprised at that because Peter, that was his story, wasn't it? You know, he made these bold claims to Jesus where he said, even though all may fall away, I will never leave you. And even if I have to die with you, I will never leave you. And then what happened? The rooster crowed. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Pastor Paul Starrett has a sermon about this called, Have You Heard the Rooster Crow? What a great title. Have You Heard the Rooster Crow? The last time Peter was challenged that he knew Christ, he became so angry, he said, he, he began swearing and raining down curses upon himself, saying, I do not know this man you are talking about. I say, we've got to resolve these little pockets in ourselves that might be embarrassed about the gospel or embarrassed to identify as a Christian. Here's a question. Are you proud to be a believer? Are you proud to be a Christian? Or are you embarrassed? Are you proud enough to make it known uh, in, in many and all circumstances? I, it was beautiful to hear Linda's testimony, wasn't it? She's not afraid. She's not ashamed. Maybe some of us feel that the gospel is not cool or hip enough. It's not relevant in our culture. Or it's not inclusive enough. Maybe it's too confining or too judgmental. And so the scriptures talk about the danger of shrinking back. Let me show you a couple scriptures that talk about that. One is First um, John chapter 2, verse 28. First John 2, 28. It says, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. And then in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith 
to the preserving of the soul. May we develop the mental toughness to never shrink back from being identified as a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen? May we develop that mental toughness, that defensive position that allows us to be diligent to our craft. If we shrink back, may we simply repent and get back in the game and become victorious as Peter was ultimately victorious. Peter denied the Lord, didn't he? And yet he went on to be the leader of the church and die a victorious martyr's death. So resolution number one is, I will not be ashamed of Jesus Christ or his gospel. Resolution resolution number two for mental toughness is taken directly from Scripture. It's 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. And here is the statement, I will not love the world. I will not love the world. Now, of course, here, the world doesn't refer to the beautiful creation that God has given us, but to the evil world system that wants to squeeze us into its mold. A system full of anger and violence and cruelty and lust and evil powers and satanic dominion. You might remember the Indian proverb that within us is a white dog and a black dog fighting to the death. And the dog that will win is the one that we feed. In every addiction program, the, probably the very first thing that is prescribed is something called a 90-day detox where you starve the black dog until he is weakened and his strength, he stripped of his strength. Well, our flesh often uh, wants to retain a little love of darkness, doesn't it? Just a little. I mean, yes, Jesus Christ is reigning in me, and yet there's, there's just this little part of me that wants to hang on to a little bit of darkness. Sometimes we love the American dream more than we love the gospel. Um, Rick Warren has a sermon called Reigniting Your Passion for God where he somewhat captures this um, substitution of the American dream for our zeal for Christ. He says, do you know what the worst sin is for Christians? It's not adultery. It's not murder. It's not some sort of sexual perversion. God tells us in Revelation 3, he says it's lukewarmness, no passion. God is just one of the things in my life. I have my social life, I have my career life, I have my sexual life, my family life, and over here is a little piece of pie called my relationship with God. God says, how dare you? I love you so much. I love you passionately. 
I made you, created you, planned you, purposed you, saved you, filled you with my Holy Spirit. I threw that in. Have a place for you in heaven, and you would treat that with half-hearted indifference, saying, excuse me, but I'm missing my favorite TV show right now. Jesus says, I'd rather have you hot or cold. Lukewarmness makes me sick to my stomach. And then he quotes C.S. Lewis, who said, the only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Here's what the word really says about the world. The world is not your friend. The world is not our home. The world does not know us. The world will never understand us. You cannot appease this world. The world hates you. The world is under the power of Satan. And the world is passing away. So, you can say to that part of yourself that wants to belong, that wants to get along, that wants to be cool and hip and loved by the world, you can say to that part of yourself what the great philosopher Wesley said to Anuga Montoya while in the midst of a sword fight in the epic film, The Princess Pride, get used to disappointment. We can move forward in our mental toughness in the faith if we resolve, I will not love the world or the things in the world. Resolution number three is, I will not flag in zeal. This comes from Romans 12, 11 in the Revised Standard Version. Never flag in zeal. Be aglow with the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Well, what does flag in zeal mean? I imagine um, the teenagers here and maybe even the young adults have never heard that expression. I don't know. But flag and zeal means to droop, to become unsteady, feeble, or spiritless, to decline in interest or attraction, to lag behind. Flagging and zeal in the New American Standard Version is transferred or uh, translated, guess how? Not lagging behind in diligence. Isn't that interesting? but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Well, Jesus said, don't lose heart. Paul said to the Thessalonians, don't grow weary in well-doing. Weariness and losing heart are realities, aren't they? We all struggle with times and seasons of those happening, and we know that the enemy of our souls loves to exploit that and uh, to wear us out, to wear out the saints. So what do we do? What do we do when we're experiencing one of those times where our zeal is not high? I say we step out of the battle. We get some rest if that's what we need. We reach out for support. We take a glorious Alaska vacation. Take some time off, get some rest, but then... We get back in the game. Get back in the game. The NFL's football season has started. Hallelujah. And uh, there's a lot of talk about 
the new players and how, oh, he's a three-down back. Well, a three-down back means that he, usually it's a younger player or a new player, and he's got all the skill, and he has enough energy to play the whole game. He can play all four downs or all three downs in a four-down set uh, without flagging in zeal. But you take an older back, say he's in the 10th year of his career, say his name is Adrian Peterson, and uh, these older backs, the coaches put them in for one play, and then they pull them out because they're gassed. They're over on the winds, you know, over on the sidelines sucking wind, and, uh, but the coaches still want to use their talent. And so um, they're used as effectively as possible. Sometimes we just need to give ourselves a severe talking to, don't we? Yeah, Jim, you can do it. You know, if I'm in my whiny phase or my self-pity place of, uh, I, just, I just can't do this, Laura. I just can't. And uh, it's great to have a tough wife at a time like that. But sometimes we just need to give ourselves a stern talking to. You know, Paul, I think, is our example here. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. Philippians 4.13. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, I worked harder than all of them. And in 2 Corinthians 12.15, I will gladly spend and be spent for the gospel. One of the greatest... Um, sayings I ever heard came from Shirley, Shirley McWilliams. Shirley, you marched into my office after, after I preached on, on love, and you said you had read in, I think it was Reader's Digest, don't be afraid to be the one who loves the most. And actually, that's what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians when he says, um, I, I will gladly spend and be spent for the gospel. He has just told them that I'm loving you, but you're not loving me. In other words, I'm, I'm laying my life down for you, but you're not giving me as much back. And, yet, and then he goes on to say, but I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Let's not flag in zeal. Let's resist the devil who wants to wear out God's saints. I will not flag in zeal. Resolution number four for mental toughness is I will not get distracted. Let's look at Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. This is the famous passage of Mary and Martha. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister, Mary, who moreover was listening to the Lord's word seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. So she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only a few things are necessary, really only one. And Mary has chosen that good part, 
which shall not be taken away from her. Well, I remember Brother Bill back in the day defending Martha. Anybody remember that? And uh, him saying, I think Martha gets a bum rap here. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I see his point. And yet it does say that Martha was distracted, and it does seem like the Lord uses this opportunity to not just say you're distracted and bothered about serving, but to speak into her life a larger issue, that she's worried and bothered, he says, by so many things. How many of you have ever uh, invited guests over, and you have this romantic notion that you're going to enjoy their company. And as you're preparing and running around and being crazy, getting things ready, um, they just aren't participating like you expected in, in getting things ready. And so pretty soon you find yourself tearing your hair out and maybe screaming at your family and, and maybe even screaming at your guests who you invited over so that you could have this enjoyable moment. Anybody ever done that? Uh, Come on, you guys. Jesus taught on distractions uh, even more thoroughly in Luke 8, verse 14, about the sower and the seed. He talks about the seed that is choked off by distractions. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries, riches, and pleasures of this life, and bringing no fruit to maturity. Boy, that kind of captures it all, doesn't it? Worry, riches, or pursuing riches and pleasure, binging on pleasure. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon in 1873 called Medicine for the Distracted. Isn't that a cool title? Medicine for the Distracted. And in that message, he looks at Psalm 94.19 where David said, When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations are my delight. And Spurgeon goes on to say that David was so single-minded in his love and delight in God that he rarely succumbed to distractions. Now, we know he did on occasion. Bathsheba would be a huge example. But he delighted in God above all other delights. He took comfort in God above all other comforts. He trusted God above all others to deliver him from the evil within himself. He trusted in God above all others when his mind was filled with anxiety. And he took comfort in God above all others when his mind was plagued by doubt. One good tip if you're easily distracted from pursuing and loving God is to practice something called planned neglect. How many have heard that expression? Planned neglect. It's where you purpose to neglect the things, I mean you specifically think about the things that you're going to neglect so you can do the thing that's most important. And so here's a quote from a famous violinist. In her book, A Practical Guide to Prayer, 
Dorothy Haskins tells about a, not, a noted concert violinist who was asked the secret of her mastery of the instrument. The woman answered the question with two words, planned neglect. Then she explained, there were many things that used to demand my time. When I went to my room after breakfast, I made my bed, straightened the room, dusted, and did whatever seemed necessary. When I finished my work, I turned to my, to my violin practice. That system prevented me from accomplishing what I should on the violin, so I reversed things. I deliberately planned to neglect everything else until my practice period was complete. And that program of planned neglect is the secret of my success. I think this is really applicable to our morning quiet time, isn't it? Or whenever we have quiet time, whenever we set that time aside to plan on neglecting the other things and know what they are. I think a great example of that is Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A, we have a Chick-fil-A at Tulsa Hills, uh, close to where we live. And that place is crazy busy during the week. I mean, there are lines out into the street of cars going through the drive-through, the two-lane drive-through, by the way. But what happens on Sunday? They're closed. So they're neglecting business on Sunday in a planned way to do the most important thing, which is honor the Lord. And I believe God is blessing that company because of that stand. Also in my counseling practice, I, I, I meet a lot of self-employed men whose wives are saying, I need more attention from him. He, he's just always thinking about work and he's, he's always got his phone in the hand in the evening. And so a lot of men have to make the decision, especially self-employed men, that seven o'clock or so I'm turning the cell phone off and uh, paying attention to my family. I'm going to do the thing that's really important and I'm just going to lose business. It just has to be that way and it's a difficult decision for them to make. But may we resolve to not be distracted from our greatest mission, which is glorifying Jesus Christ, glorifying God, and making disciples. Is that your greatest mission? I think it's a good question to ask. And then finally, resolution number five, I will not be afraid, for God is with me. The scripture here is Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Max Licato is a great Christian writer, and he's got a new book out called Anxious for Nothing, Finding Calm in a Chaotic World. Doesn't that sound nice? He writes uh, on page five of this book, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, anxiety disorders are reaching epidemic proportions in America. Anxiety disorders in the United States are the number one mental health problem among women and are second only to alcohol and drug abuse among men. Then he goes on to say, the United States is now the most anxious nation in the world. 
he says, if, if worry were an Olympic event, we would win the gold medal. And then he looks for reasons, and he cites a few reasons. Uh, he talks about change, rapid change in the last 30 years because of the Internet primarily. He talks about how Americans are moving faster than other cultures. He talks about personal challenges, and then he talks about getting older, that you know we're living longer. And I just threw this in because it's fun. He said, my wife found an app that guesses a person's age by evaluating a picture of the person's face. I missed, it missed her age by 15 years to the young side. She liked that. It missed mine by five years to the old side, so I retook it. It added seven more, <laughs> then 10. I quit before it pronounced me dead. <laughs> It's kind of like that with the scale in the morning for me. You know, I step on the scale and, oh, that can't be right. I'll step on and it'll be a few pounds heavier, you know, and like just kick the scale under the, under the dresser. He finds an acronym in Philippians 4, 6 through 8. The acronym is CALM, C-A-L-M. So C means for C, he has celebrate God's goodness. For A, ask God for help. For L, leave your concerns with him. And for M, meditate on good things. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. I believe that's verse 8. Fear and worry is a thief that we must wrestle to the ground haul away to jail, and demand a life sentence. It robs our faith, our focus, our confidence. It hampers our diligence. It robs others of our gifts. So on and so on and so on. So what a beautiful verse to memorize. 2 Timothy 2.2 For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. May we resolve to conquer fear and worry in our lives through God's power. May we say to ourselves, I will not fear, I will not be afraid. So in closing, I hope the Holy Spirit has spoken to you this morning to determine to develop your mental toughness. I pray that if any of these resolves, um, if you've been in a season where these are not true, that you would go ahead and repent and get back in the game. One last story. Um, when Nathaniel was in high school, he, he played a, a game, a soccer game out at Union Stadium, and it was snowing. And um, ESPN was, was televising the game. So we were watching the game at home. Nathaniel was the only player out there in, short sleeve, in a short sleeve shirt. Those of you who go to soccer games know that the soccer field can be the coldest or hottest place in the world. The, you know, the Negev Desert or the Arctic Pole have nothing on a soccer game. So anyway, this was one of those cold, bone-chilling games 
And Nathaniel made a good defensive play, and the uh, commentator said, that Nathaniel Grinnell is the toughest player out there. Well, I just swelled with pride. And I, you know, the uh, Division I schools I knew were going to be ringing the phone off the hook, offering scholarships. And in the next few weeks, none of those calls came. And so I called a, a college recruiting specialist. I said, what's the deal? He's a great player. Why isn't he getting any offers? And she said, well, I suspect that he's a high-level player, but not a high-impact player. And that had the ring of truth to it. I want to be a high-impact Christian. I don't need an evangelistic crusade. You don't need an evangelistic crusade. You don't need to be Billy Graham to be a high-impact Christian. What we need to be is obedient and to be diligent in pursuing our faith. Be craftsmen of our faith with these resolves. I will not be ashamed of Jesus Christ and his gospel. I will not love the world I will not flag in zeal. I will not get distracted. I will not be afraid. So, if you would like prayer for any of these, would you stand briefly and let me pray for us all as we try to ask the Lord for that mental toughness to be the real deal, to be true to Him in all these areas. If you need greater zeal in your life, particularly if, if you have been practicing your faith in a lazy manner, I would challenge you to stand and make your faith your highest priority once again. So Father, we just come before you. You know us. You know me. You know our weaknesses, you know our failures, you know those areas in which we need to repent. Lord, if we have been lazy about our relationship with you, we ask your forgiveness and we pray for that zeal, that zeal for your house would once again consume us. That once again we would be about our Father's business, like Jesus. That every pocket of shame or embarrassment about being a Christian would be rooted out and driven away. Father, the darkness that wants to own us, we pray that we would have a determination to walk in the light and to be children of the light, to be children of the day. And Father, there's so many distractions. We pray that you would keep us focused and disciplined and diligent, that indeed we would be as concerned about working out our salvation, as concerned about applying all diligence to our faith as we are about anything else in our life, even more so. Lord. And finally, Father, when 
fear or worry hits us. May we determine not to be afraid because God is with us. You will never leave us or forsake us. And that we will overcome through the power of the living God. So, Father, we thank you for these resolves. We pray that you would work them in our lives and cause us to gain that mental toughness that being diligent requires, that our faith requires. We know that in the end, it's your work, not our efforts. But we want our efforts to cooperate with your work. So we bless you and we praise you and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.